And we're live. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, uh, if you're looking at the screen, if you're watching us on the YouTubes, if you're listening to us and read the thing, you realize this is yet another fireside chat, but this one we've got an even cooler topic. Tanks, mechs, oh my. So uh, before we get this started, we're going to let our illustrious guests uh, introduce themselves to you. You might have heard them before. They're kind of famous. But uh, we're going to get this started, and we're going to start at the top. So Mr. Blaine, can you introduce yourself to our audience? Sure, I'm Blaine Pardo. I've been writing in the Battletech universe for 37 years, and now I'm writing for Land and Sea, which is an upcoming series that will be coming out early next year. I'm kind of excited to read that. That sounds uh, sounds pretty amazing. Uh, Mr. Richard Fox, can you introduce yourself to our audience? It's been a while since you've been on the show. That's right. Happy to be back. Hi, everyone. Richard Fox here. I am the author of the Ember Wars saga, along with the Exiled Fleet, and uh, the Tear series, and Ascent Empire, co-written along with the much more famous and much more talented David Weber. So thanks for having me back. Maybe more famous. I don't know. I would call the talent about equal. So we'll we'll just uh, we'll just accept your humility and move on. And uh, what about you, Mr. Scott? Can you introduce yourself to our audience? Sure, I'm Scott. I come down more so on the space fleet side of uh, the Amazon military sci-fi breakdown rather than space marine and ground combat, but. I do write some ground combat. Uh, I wrote Mech Wars um, and uh, probably uh, Ixon Prophecies and Spacers are the ones that I, I mostly bring up in terms of my series. Spacers just wrapped up, so moving on to the next thing. Okay, um, and so as, as you've, we said earlier, dear listener, uh, we're talking mechs and tanks and speculative fiction. Um, and so the authors have already so kindly told us what they wrote in that field. So um, first, we're going to start with a uh, discussion for the panel. Do you think there's a difference between a, ta- a tank and a mech suit as they are uh, used in sort of futuristic scenarios? Scott, uh, go ahead, Richard. Well, I mean, if, if uh, generally, if I think it's a mech, I think it's going to be walking or it's going to be or it's going to have more at least legs or at least at least two legs. But if it's rolling around on treads, I would call it a tank. That's just how I see it. Okay. What about you, uh, Mr. Blaine? Yeah, I'm going to fall in the same basic category, although hover tanks are out there a lot, which I have kind of a functional issue against, but um, (laughs) mostly because of the physics and crap involved with them. But you know, mecha, you know, it also depends on the size. You can go anywhere from power armor suit, which is an exoskeleton, all the way up to a full-blown mech, which is something that the pilot is either sitting in and driving or is in some way in a cockpit controlling it. Um, I think that they all fill different functions on the battlefield, you know, and, and they serve different functions in warfare. I, I think a tank is much more assault level vehicles. I think there's a level of mobility you get with a mech that's a little bit different, at least the way we've tried to portray them out in fiction. Okay. Uh, what about you, Scott? Do you see a difference or, or do you, uh, are you going to agree with what the, uh, the other illustrious panelists have said? I, I don't disagree. Um, I would add that, well, I guess I would build on to also what Blaine was saying about the, the specialized roles between the two. Um, 
It's fun to think about huge, you know, mechanized mechs stalking around the battlefield, but from a practicality perspective, they paint a pretty big target. So, and, you know, therefore they're easier to hit and the more armor you need to add on. So the even heavier they get, the more energy they need to, to make their way around uh, a theater. So realistically, especially in the near term, unless we see some dramatic improvements in technology, I don't want to be that guy but probably something like power armor or skeletons are, are more feasible uh, and probably in a much different application. I mean, with, with tanks, they're obviously much lower to the ground. There is still a strong possibility of stealth, especially when you're in a, in a defensive position. And uh, I mean, well, we know about the practic practicality of tanks because we've been using them for, for over a hundred years now. It feels like it was just yesterday. So do you see a, a, a feasible difference between um, a mech suit and just powered armor? Do, do you see the distinction there? Because, you know, one could argue that, that they're sort of synonymous. Well, I, I would say that powered armor, you're the person inside is moving normally or as normal as possible versus a mech suit. You have a pilot who is you know sitting down. He's not moving his arms and legs to move the, the mech's arms and legs. So that, that's where I would make the difference at. Okay. Yeah, I think what? there's a middle ground in there though, Richard, because what we've done in Land and Sea is we started out with exosuits and then by the time you get to the Gen 3 suits, it's still a cockpit, but the arms and legs have sleeves that you know mimic your movement or translate that movement into the movement of the mech. Um, but, you know, I think power armor and exoskeletons are, are not only feasible, but probably the next gen you're going to start seeing for infantry on actual combat fields, you know, because it's always about the protection of the poor bloody infantry out there. Um, you know, mecha suits, when you get up to the big size, Scott hit the nail on the head. And that's one of the things I've always kind of cringed about writing in for Battletech was you had these three-story you know, mechs out there. We used to get into these debates about how do you even camouflage something like that? And I'm like, hey, if it's if it weighs 100 tons and it's running at 60 kilometers per hour, there's no point in camouflaging. You might as well just paint it hot fluorescent pink because, it, you know, it's thundering across the battlefield. It's like watching a three-story building run. You know, you're, you might as well just skip a lot of that. I think when you get to the smaller suits uh, or smaller mecha, and I'm talking like kind of like the stuff you saw in uh, oh, the James Cameron film. Uh, what yeah, was Avatar. It? Avatar. You know, you look at those types of suits, you get more practical applications like for urban combat and stuff where tanks are a little more vulnerable and where the mobility of the suit would and its smaller size might give you some sort of an advantage. But, you know, even then, I think it's going to be a little bit of a pain in the butt. Okay. So you mentioned earlier, uh, Blaine, that you thought that there were issues with hover tanks. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit. So what do you see as the issue with a hover tank? We already have hover technology that the U.S. Navy at least uses today. So why do you see a hover tank as, as problematic? Well, bottom line is, if you want to lift a 60-ton tank, the amount of thrust you're going to have to have to lift that tank, it is, it's way beyond any of our capacity to do. And, and you have to ask, what does the hover actually solve? 
it's really useful for crossing terrain where you might not take a tank, let's say a deep swamp or crossing a river is a very practical application for hover. Beyond that, why do you need it? Not only that, it gives you an unstable gun platform. Imagine firing a 120 millimeter cannon on a platform that's hovering. You know, you're going to go one way and the shell is going to go the other. And, you know, you can address it with, you know, I call it hand wavium technology, where we, we all kind of use techno magic to go. There's compensators for that. But in realistic capabilities, I just think hover tanks don't serve much of a purpose beyond river crossings or lake crossings and things along those lines. I mean, and, and to lift a tank of any size, like an Abrams tank, I, I don't know where you're going to get a power plant to be able to do that. And even in a science fiction setting, it becomes really impractical. Um, you know, but that's I, that's my take on it. And I've looked at this stuff for years, but I, I've just never I've always when you look at sci fi military hardware and I don't care if it's fleet ships, whether it's tanks, mecha or whatever, they have to serve some sort of purpose. So having a hover tank, I'm not sure what it beyond its ability to do an amphibious crossing. I don't know what what it, purpose it might solve. Maybe when maybe you guys have some other scenarios where that would be of use. That'd be great. So, Richard, you've never been one to be accused of having no opinions on things. So do you do you have thoughts on hover tanks uh, well, versus it, just standard? No, I, I agree with Blaine, especially the, the part about, you know, if you're hovering and you fire the cannon, all of a sudden, you know, everyone gets a real quick lesson in Newtonian physics. You know, <laughs> you, you get the shell pushes you. If you've ever seen any tank fire the main gun, it'll rock back on the chassis. And these tanks are not light. So, you know, when it comes to hover tanks, it's always been a little... Do I need this? And if you have the, you know, the, the technology to do any kind of hover sort, maybe if you had to do the rubber river crossing, you just have a kit. You slap on the tank, cross the river, take the kit off, and go on your way. But it's uh, I, I've never I, I haven't really put much hover tank into anything I've ever written. But you know, it's uh, if, if somebody out there finds a good way to have fun with that story, then you know, more power to them. All right. What about you, Scott? You have you have strong opinions one way or the other. I'm with Blaine and Richard again on this one. Uh, hover tanks they were fun in Star Fox, that that one Star Fox level. But uh, you're really just another thing is you're introducing one of the major vulnerabilities of mechs. You're raising a target into the air, and especially with smart ammo likely being a thing that we're going to see on the horizon, and you know homing missiles and things. It's, it just doesn't seem like a bright idea. So other than the rule of cool physics, sort of shoot that one in the in the leg, so to speak, for you guys. Okay, that's a fair answer. I've never been one to let science get in the way of a good story, though. So, <laughs> so we've talked about you know the the practical limitations of mech suits. I've seen the if you guys have followed the Aliens franchise, they sort of in um, without saying so, they they posit that the first sort of mech suits came as a adaptation of actual forklift type equipment that. Uh, loaders would use uh, in a setting. Do you think that that is going to be the first practical application of something like a mech suit? Well, when it comes to get, getting the first kind of augmented soldier on the battlefield, it'll probably be just a, a weight, something to help carry more weight. Because anytime a commander can load his soldiers down with more stuff, he will take it. 
And every time a soldier finds out, oh, we got this new lighter gun, the commander's thinking, now you can carry more ammo. And uh, <laughs> so it, I think what we'll probably see is just like an exoskeleton that allows soldiers to carry larger weapons or to you know, carry more weight on them. And and if it can, can it, if it advances from there, we'll we'll see. And it always it comes down to is power source, because okay, you can run pretty pretty well for about five kilometers. What happens when you get to the six kilometer and you need new batteries? That's when you you know get into contact. So developing a power source that's going to last, you know, for the good duration of a battle until you can get resupply will be a pretty key thing. Otherwise, now you're way down with this very heavy you know anchor. On you on the battlefield, and no one likes that. So, so in the 1950s, the movie, the series, the Rocketeer comics were very popular. So the army went out and invented a jetpack that allowed soldiers to fly, much like they did in the um, in the comics. Unfortunately, they found the amount of uh, propulsion used to keep that thing in the air for five minutes was about all they could manage. And so, while we invented the capability to do that. We couldn't figure out the, the power source in such a way that it made it practical. So you see the power source also sidelining uh, some of this other future tech, uh, at least until we improve batteries. Well, real world, and you know, we as authors can just ha have a little hand wavium or balonium, and then all of a sudden, no, no, you're good for three days. Go, go, you're fine. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I, what I've been doing with land and sea, we've we've had to go look the the practicality of an armored suit, and this is set in 2039 even though battery technology is improved by then the, their actual field time at the start of the series is really about five or six hours on the battlefield and it, you know you have to deal with with what it has to drive in order for that suit to actually be effective and i i agree with richard it's all about carrying more crap uh, we, you know, and I think ground drones are going to be much more useful in that capacity. You know, you could strap a bunch of Carl Gustavs to a drone, have it run across the battlefield and drop that stuff off for you. I think that's going to be really useful uh, as opposed to, you know, some of the stuff that that we see where we're mounting all of these heavy weapons on a, on a, a power suit. I, you're just not going to do that. It's really to protect the operator and to essentially allow them to be able to conduct warfare on a different level or scale. Otherwise, why do it? Okay. So there have been some that have argued that the age of the tank is dead. I know at least in the U.S., the, the U.S. Marine Corps got rid of most of their tank units. So do you see a room for, for tanks in, in future combat? Well, I tell you, if you look at the war in Ukraine right now, everyone loves tanks, and they're all everyone's asking for more tanks. And what's interesting about what's happening in, in Ukraine is, I remember back when people were trying to predict how World War III would go in Europe and find the Fulda gap, and a lot of people had said that, you know, oh, we've got all these great anti-tank weapon systems, but eventually, after a long enough conflict, we will run out. And then, can you make enough to you know to replace your burn rate? And if you can have, if there's more tanks and you have javelins, then eventually the tanks will win. So it comes down to, you know, can you get that anti enough anti-tank systems into the hands of infantry to, to affect, uh, you know, uh, tanks. But then also the, the latest versions of the Abrams, they have anti, uh, like RPG systems on there. And they also have the uh, explosive reactive armor on there. So there are a lot of countermeasures that can work. 
And even and I think right now we haven't seen a, a drone that can drop a weapon or a small drone that can drop a weapon that can definitely take out a tank. And a lot of times when we watch these Ukrainian videos, if they get one, if they get a grenade, you know, down a hatch, okay, that's that's different. But if that T seventy two is sitting in a, a dugout position and it has some overhead cover, that that drops RKJ or RGK seventy three. I forgot what the anti tank nomenclature is. Is it's going to be a lot less effective. So and we may say, oh, the tank's about to go on the way out. Meanwhile, the tank is currently on in charge of the battlefield in the, today's most modern war. And there was a great article out today, a popular, I think it was Popular Science did an article on they're refitting, the Russians are refitting their older tanks now with defensive measures to deal with the Javelins, which, you know, Javelin missile kind of flies in, then rises up and comes down on the tank. And so they're coming up with counters to that and they're doing refit kits on their tanks. Now, whether that'll be effective or not, because I mean, we're talking the Russians, um, you know, I don't know, but, you know, you see that. Look at what happened during the Gulf War. We sent Humvees over. It turns out, you know, improvised explosives were blowing them up. So what did we do? We up-armored our Humvees. You know, the, these field modification kits become a real practicality and evolve. I, I agree with Richard. I think tanks are going to have a role here. Um, I don't know if it's going to be the, the armored cavalry of old, but let's face it, we all remember you know, Norman Schwarzkopf with his famous end run, you know, around the Republican guards. I mean, that was classic World War II blitzkrieg tanks in the desert kind of stuff. So I think they have a role here. Scott? I think the environment is going to dictate a lot of this stuff too. I mean, if we're talking about, you know, sci-fi in the far future, if it's a planetary war, then obviously, like Richard said, we're seeing the application of tanks right now and like Blaine pointed out, we're seeing the revolution. But if you're talking about an interplanetary war, you need to think about the cost of getting material to orbit. How, how much can we get that down? Um, it also depends on where, what are the attractive targets? Are, are people living mostly on planets? Are they living on moons or asteroids? Are they living on sp orbital space stations? Uh, and not only the cost, but you know, can a tank feasibly be dropped on one of these environments and be able to operate? Probably for a lot of those environments I just mentioned, uh, something a human could wear would be a, a lot more feasible, a lot more effective in terms of maneuvering in tight quarters and things like that. Uh, yes, yeah, I have to remember. Scott, one. Us, I'm sorry, Scott. Tell us what you meant by weir. I, I know what you meant, but that was a really good term. Was but by what? Uh, by wearing or wearing. Oh, <laughs> yeah, well, well uh, I guess it's the distinction between piloting and uh, operating, but wearing might not be the most specific term there. But I was thinking of something more uh, more compact, like an exoskeleton or, uh, or a power suit. I guess tec technically you're always being borne by the power armor, I'm thinking, so probably, probably wear would not be uh, exactly right there. The other thing that comes into as a factor, you know, we always say the old saying, you know, ta tactics is for amateurs. It's all about logistics. That's what wins wars. You want to run a tank. I got news for you. The technical team you need to run that tank and to maintain that tank. If it's in battle for four hours, it's going to spend six hours 
getting cleaned, refit, maintenance cycles and stuff done. So it's not just, to Scott's point, it's not just about bringing a tank on an interstellar battlefield. It's about bringing all of the crap you need to keep that tank operational. And even right now, you look at the Abrams, the Abrams has huge maintenance cycles. Yeah, it can run and it can go 50 miles an hour and it can shoot and it can do a lot of stuff. But after they've done that for five or six hours, you got to get that thing in and get it maintained. And that means having personnel, tools, lubricants, spare parts. It's a big deal. And, you know, it, it's not as easy. You know, it's easier when you look at Earth. You look at the terrain on Earth and go, okay, there's places, though, that we would never take a tank on this planet. You know, it, it just wouldn't be practical at all. Um, part of the reason you're seeing the Ukrainians be so successful is they're able to capture that equipment and they're trained on it already because they had identical equipment. And they've been able to do the fixing and repair, et cetera. But that's all a matter of logistics. And, you know, to Scott's point, you know, you, you want to bring in a tank, you're bringing along more than just the tank and the crew and, and the, the shells to keep it reloaded. You've got to do a lot of work to keep that functional. And you put that in a science fiction environment, you know, where there's no oxygen or there's other unique terrain features that do exceptional, exceptional wear and tear on that vehicle. It's going to be a nightmare. But so that's, uh, I can agree with that. Is Richard, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but the tooth to tail ratio, meaning the amount of support troops to one troop in the field fighting, hasn't changed much. It's still about 10 to 1. It has been for a while. That's, that's pretty close to accurate, Richard? That, that sounds about right, yeah. So, you know, for every, you know, one or three man crew, you know, on a tank, you know, that seems to be the, what the optimization has gone to now that we've got auto loaders. Sometimes four man crew, if you're going to, if you're going to manually load shells. For every four men of those, you've got, like you said, a, an army of logistics that is another uh, weak point in your war because you don't necessarily have to fight the tank if you can fight the logistics. So the other thing that we learned, uh, you mentioned, Lane, the up-armoring the Humvees. The, one of the things we learned about that is at a certain point in time, the balance between the ability to power the vehicle and the ability to armor it are at war with each other. Like the running joke was we were doing good when we got 45 miles an hour on our Humvee after they put that up armor kit on it. Uh, Cause the, the engines, I mean, we just didn't have equipment optimized for 150 degree weather. Um, so that's another consideration is how the weather, which, you know, you sort of hinted at Scott is going to affect things. when you mentioned the location, um, do you think we're going to end up with a one size fits all um, tank situation? Or are you going to end up with, uh, vehicles that are optimized for various conditions. I'd say we're, we're a long ways before we see tanks being used on a planet or a, or a location other than the planet they were manufactured on. But um, that, that's, that's interesting too, because the more uniform you get with the design, the easier they're going to be produced. They're, they're going to be to be produced. So if we could, I mean, we're, we may be uh, delving into hand wavium territory here, but but if we uh, if we get some highly efficient fabricators that we can you know load up into space and harvest materials from asteroids and just have very uniform tank design like the same chassis on all our, all our tanks and same weapons designs and so on. I, I mean, 
standardization could be our friend there. But then again, when you're dealing with all these different environments, especially all the you know, the environments that science fiction writers like to play in, then specialization would be your friend. It'd be interesting to see what the happy medium is between those two. Okay. What about you, Richard? You got any any thoughts on this? Well, you know, I was just thinking that, hey, that sounds like a really good uh, villain race. That they, they drop on a planet to assault it. They're they're pretty adept. But after a while, you say, hey, they just changed their, how their tanks look. Now they can freaking fly. And I, I, <laughs> I thought that might be an interesting enemy to fight, is where it's like the enemy is adapting to the environment so fast, and all of a sudden the good guys are now on the back foot. But, you know, that that's just what I was thinking. But, and it, it's all, you know, when it comes down to writing your story, the most important thing is to, you know, be entertaining and then number two, be consistent. With uh, with whatever kind of tech you're putting in there, so because readers are pretty smart, when all of a sudden it's like, oh, we need to be on the other side of the galaxy, and you're just there, and it's like everyone's like, come on, you can do better, <laughs> but you know, Game of Thrones so, for you. <laughs> so that's actually one of the distinctions about the American equipment during World War II was that they were adapting on the fly. They invented add-on equipment so they could cut through the hedgerows that were otherwise stopping other nations so you're right there is a lot of room for uh on-site innovation um they'll play a difference well yeah, you got to remember too what tanks do is they do break the the steel made of trench warfare i mean when tanks were introduced in world war one you know battle of cambry uh, a little bit at the somme depending on where you would name it you know you want to focus on but tanks were instrumental in shattering trench warfare and to a certain degree, they do prevent that from, from occurring even today. So having armor present is important, but it, it's a question of how much armor do you want to haul? And, and that gets into where Scott's kind of talking about, where he writes a lot about fleet-type actions. It's like, you know, what do I want to load up and how many of these do I want to bring? I, you know, there's a ratio out there, I'm sure, Um but it, it gets complicated, and, and I think armor is going to fill a role. But what role will it, it actually be able to fulfill? Okay. Well, dear listener, this would normally be the part of the interview where I would insert a commercial, but I couldn't decide. And I love all three of these authors' tank stuff, which is why I invited them here when I thought of this panel. So I'm going to tell you to click on their Amazon links, click the buy all button, and just buy their stuff, and you'll you'll be entertained, and they'll be very happy. And, uh, you know, they can buy shoes for their wives or whatever rich people do. I don't know. We'll figure it out someday. Um, so, so Blaine, you had mentioned, or maybe it was Richard, about the war in Ukraine is sort of showing us that maybe the age of the tank isn't dead. Uh, do you think the lessons that the Russians are learning in regards to the, the need for combined arms? Because one of the things we noticed on the initial invasion, if you're watching it from the armchair general seat, was they didn't have infantry supporting their tanks and they got hosed and ambushed that said infantrymen would have been able to save them from. Do you think you're going to see the need for that in an age where whiz-bang technology and sensors can sort of give you information? Do you think the need for combined arms is still going to be there? I think if you're going to put a tank on the field or a mech, you're going to need infantry support. And the Russians have learned an important lesson with that. You know, it, 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 it almost makes me wonder why I was so scared of the damned Russians during the Cold War. Because um, <laughs> you know, it was like, wow, they, they really get their, their asses kicked here. Um, you know, a lot of it's their command style and structure too. You know, they, the average Russian field commander can't 
make decisions on the battlefield. They have to have a general or a colonel come out and tell them what to do, which is why you have so many generals that have been killed and captured at the front lines because the Russians will sit there and do nothing. They've been trained to do nothing until they're told what to do. Whereas, you know, if you look at how NATO fights, it fights very much with the doctrine that at the lowest level, commanders can make impromptu decisions and make adjustments to deal with a changing battlefield situation. I, I think, you know, the Russians have suffered from a lot of different problems. I, to me, combined arms is always going to be a part of this. You can't hold ground without people. It's just not feasible. You can bombard from orbit. You can threaten to bombard more from orbit. But if you want to actually hold the ground and be able to exploit the resources of whatever you're conquering, you're going to have to have poor bloody infantry down on the ground, I think. What about you, Scott? you have thoughts on this? Because you you've written some pretty, pretty amazing mech stories uh, yourself um, that address some of this. Do you have thoughts on the, the ratio of what? you know, whether these tanks can operate independently, whether there's a need for the combined arms? Well, you pointed out yourself, JR, the, the, the logistics that, that's required to field any kind of uh, armor and uh, really any troop at all. So I don't I don't see that going away anytime soon. Uh, I think we could go, the, we're probably going to go the way of automation and we could see crewless tanks at some point, but that, that's kind of going down a different path. Uh, even even in my Mech Wars series, that happens all on one solar system. The action is largely on one planet. But whatever I've I've written my my my, my fleet um, stuff, my fleet action stuff, I, I've I've never even really bothered with tanks. It's all been you know small scale assaults on orbital facilities and things like that, and uh, kind of let colonial armies worry about the. The, the land-based conflict. Uh, in terms of the, the closest that I've gotten to armor that my ships have carted around have been, well, I guess it would be the mechs from mech wars, which are, you could an argument could be made that really what they are is power armor. It's, it's I guess it's as close to being mech scale as power armor can get. But um, I, I've tended to stay pretty lightweight and very heavy on, on troop presence and Marines and things. So that, that's where my fiction has come down on it anyway. And uh, and Richard? Yeah, um, you know, no matter how big your mech is, there's always going to be places it can't go because fundamentally it's going to be larger than a person. And if you are if you are defending a city and you know these 15-foot-tall mechs are coming for you and you realize, hey, these mechs can't climb stairs, these mechs can't get on top of buildings, these mechs aren't going to be down in the sewers where we can go, well, then you're going to use that advantage to, to try to get really close to the mech and and uh, hit it with an anti-tank weapon from a, an angle it's not prepared for. I, I did my uh, my thesis in college on the Battle of Okinawa, where there was American armor, and the American armor needed a lot of infantry support because the Japanese were so well dug in that they could just pop out, bam, there goes your tank. But if that tank had uh, you know a, a squad of infantry in close proximity and some flamethrowers, it would solve some problems, but then also during the the Iraq War, uh, you know the problem with having close infantry support and explosive reactive armor meant that if your tank got hit by something that could take it out, well, you have now launched a claymore at all of your support troops. So there was a 
kind of fine balance that had to happen right there. But it was always, you know, it, it, you know, you would need that close air retrieve support to, to, to guide, to protect the tank. And what's really good about tanks and the urban operations is you, you know, the bad guys are in that house and they're dug in pretty well. And you're going to lose a lot of guys assaulting that house. Then you secure the area, call in the tank, tank goes up, blows the house up. They love doing that by the way. And then pulls back. <laughs> and then the infantry goes back in and cleans up the mess. I mean, that's, that is almost textbook of how these sort of you know weapon systems reinforce each other. I have seen that in real life. We were pinned down in uh, Karbala, and I can tell you when there's a sniper in the building, a Mark 19 taking out the building, no building, no sniper. It, it works beautifully. So a big gun doing it even quicker would have been nice. Uh, I concur. So um, to you guys, we've talked about you know the the difference between the mech suit, the powered armor, and the tank. Um, we've talked about sort of their role in the battlefield. Do you guys have a preference when you're writing for any of the above? Uh, Scott? A preference between uh, power using... armor and tanks? Yes, sir. A pretty strong preference, I would say, for power armor or power suits. Um, I, I've, I found it more, despite having written a series about mechs, I have found it more interesting story-wise to write to write about uh, you know infantry tactics and ship boardings and and you know taking stations and things like that. So I, I like I find I've have found it more interesting to kind of focus on what are the capabilities of the suit, you know, like what are the how does it enhance your senses, uh, how does it improve communications, things like that. Um, in terms of ground warfare, I've, I've tended to keep it small. Okay. Uh, Blaine, do you have a preference? I mean, I'm, I'm going to take a guess because because I know what you've written, but do you have a preference? Well, yeah, I did Battletech for 37 years, so it was all about the mechs. Now that I'm moving into land and sea, what I'm doing is really reducing the number of mechs, which we call Asha rigs, and they're really working in a combined arms focus. So it's really more about the infantry that are there and how they work with the, the ground drones and how they work with the, the mechanized suits. And I think that gives it a little more realistic flavor. And I think it's a little more fun to play with because infantry still have this incredible role and in how they interact with, with new technology, especially when you start looking at how sensors are going to repaint how the battle space is projected for infantry units, et cetera, on the ground and, and armor on the ground. I think it's going to be real interesting. So I'm actually shifting a little bit away from all mecha to more of a combined arms approach. Okay. That'll be interesting to read. Um, so we will have to check out your website where you will tell us all about it when we can hit the buy button. But uh, what about you, Richard? Do you have a preference? You know, I, I excuse me. I, I I like to have my cake and eat it too. So I have mechs that are about three times the size of a person, but instead of having a pilot in there moving his arms and legs, the pilot is inside an armor cocoon, and his nervous system is plugged into the into the suit, and he can move just like a normal soldier. And it's very you know a uh, Veritech in in humanoid form or Optimus Prime. You know, just imagine him running around because I'm a child of the 80s. And that's what I always had in mind when I wanted to have mechs. So I, I like to have kind of that cross, uh, you know, between the two of you, you don't need a crew for this mech. And, you know, one person can just walk in it and just the way they know how to walk. And that, you know, reduces a lot of training time. And 
lets me cheat a lot as an author. Like, I really need to get this character into the fight. But he doesn't have to learn how to use the suit. He just has to walk. You know, and that's also taking a page from Heimlich or with uh, with his Marauder suits and Starship Troopers. And uh, but then also I, I put I put a whole bunch of weapons, probably too many, on my armor, just because it's cool. I'm like, and then uh, you know what? Sometimes like swords. Yeah, of course they need swords. They're getting swords. Fine. And then they have swords. It's great. So so you did that as well, Scott. You had them operating the the vehicle in a dream state. So do you think that uh, that there's a reason that that kind of concept appeals to people, where they almost become the suit instead of crewing the suit? This is sort of an open discussion question, not specific, but but I've seen other people do that as well, Richard. Yeah, I it's I'm sorry, Scott, I didn't mean to jump in, but it's also it's so much easier for the for the reader when the reader doesn't have to learn how to drive the tank. And the reader can just get into the action. I'm sorry, Scott, please forgive me. No, Scott, yeah, that's that's essentially what I was going to say. Uh, it, it's, <laughs> it's it's much easier to imagine the experience of, you know. It's, it's basically you fighting, but you're three times bigger than you normally are, and you have all, access to all this awesome weaponry just on your person. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's much easier to envision for the reader and arguably more immersive for that reason. So, yeah, so it's a power fantasy. End is we have to think through all of the nuances of that and make sure that it's valid and it makes sense because the minute. All right. Yeah, we, we I think all the readers have grown up watching Gundams and stuff, so they want to go and re re recreate that experience. Okay, so what would be the the drawbacks of that type of system? Because if you're going to give your characters a, a bonus, you almost have to make a the counter um, version of that. That's the that's the penalty for that type of equipment. Do you see a drawback for that? It's big, which makes it a big target. <laughs> Well, specifically with the type of system where you jack in almost to the equipment and it's, it becomes your flesh, for lack of a, a better term. Do you, do you see there as being downsides to something like that? The downside I wrote in is that if you try to do things with the mech that your body can't do, your nervous system can't handle it, and you run the risk of turning into a vegetable. And then also if you take too much damage while in the suit, you could be burnt out and into a vegetable. And then also I had a, a, another alien race that figured out how to overload the connection between the pilot and the suit so you know you can have you know you can find all those those uh those little chinks in the armor there and given and you know, just have those as disadvantages for the reader but you know also but you know telling the reader hey if you try to make your arms spin the other way while you're turning your torso in a way you don't know how you you might you know blow your eyeballs out and you know, the readers pretty much agree with that okay what about you scott yeah, well, there's the obvious one they play and said bigger target. There's also the fact that if it's clear where in the mech the the human pilot is, then they're gonna they're gonna favor targeting that area over other areas of the mech. And once the human is disabled, chances are, unless AI is really good in this universe, then the uh, once the human is dead, the mech is disabled. Uh, I seem to recall in Mech Wars. It's been a while since I wrote it now, but I seem to recall that. The, the technology that allowed them to basically dream that they were the mech um, also had psychological ramifications. And uh, if I recall correctly, one of the characters went crazy because of that. Yeah, I've read it recently. That and you had the the, um, the sleep part, like the process was addictive. So there was that factor 
you know, you had the balance too that you wrote in, which I thought was a creative way to do it. Have you ever written any where they jack in Blaine where like almost they become the suit or have you kept with it separate? We did that in Battletech a little bit um, with the Unbound series and, and stuff. We've done that stuff before. And yeah, there's huge psychological implications with it. Uh, you know, ultimately we're science fiction writers. So anything positive we put in, we always put in the negative side to that because you have to do that and because that's how the real world works in many respects is for every advantage you gain you gain some disadvantage um with battletech it was always the trade-off between weight speed and firepower and armor you know you were constantly balancing that so the faster you were the lighter you you know the lighter you were which meant less armor which meant less weapons and so the more you are armored up, the slower you became. And it, so there's trade-offs on all of this technology. So do you see a role or do you see um, issues with, cause you know, whenever you talk about anything being totally automated, you get the jokes about Skynet because reasons. So do you see any of these um, tanks and mech suits, et cetera, being totally autonomous? Uh, do you think it's a good thing? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Autonomous, no, but I think, you know, we, what we've seen with drone technology in the Air Force where we've got drones that are able to fly and conduct ground support missions and do, you know, reconnaissance, etc. I could easily see a tank being automated and driven just like a, a drone is being driven. But the counter to that is it's open up to, you know, electronic countermeasures and things along those lines that could jam a signal. But you, you could potentially remove the person from the actual battlefield in a tank situation. I don't know if you would do that necessarily with a mech, but why not? You know, you could. You could have a whole bay of guys who are 20 miles away sitting, you know, in a concrete bunker who are driving the mechs, et cetera. I th that makes a little more sense than making them completely autonomous and assuming that they'll do the right thing. Uh, I know too many computer programmers and I worked in IT for 25 years. I wouldn't trust any of them to program anything that had a gun that could shoot. <laughs> okay, fair. What about you, Richard? Well, yeah, I, I, I'm thinking about, about Tesla and uh, and their AI stack they have with Project Dojo and everything they're doing with their, their full self-driving. And uh, the, the thing is, is like these, the cars follow instructions very well and the, the, it seems like the car is making a decision no the car is just doing with the optimized way it's been told to do something and if you put all that kind of if you can you know finalize it and put that into a weapon system that goes downrange, you know it, it would work great until it comes across something it doesn't understand and then also you know if, if you all have any kind of connection to it wirelessly you know you can jam that you can uh overtake that you can inject some new code so there's lots of things that can go wrong and i'm sure someday probably we'll all live to be old enough to see it all go very wrong with some drone that just didn't like go somewhere but it's supposed to like there was that one drone the beast of kandahar that was for some reason flying over iran and somehow landed in iran and then the iranians said hey everybody look at this american drone that landed in iran and uh you know that drone was not supposed to do that i'm pretty sure so, you know, it's, uh, I don't think we're going to have a human out of the loop anytime soon. And so we'll see how that goes. 
you have any thoughts on that one, Scott? I think we're bound to see automation increase. I mean, it just seems to be the way everything is going. But uh, I, I also agree, agree with uh, Blaine that you can't really just cut robots loose on the battlefield and expect them to do target selection in a way that's going to play out well diplomatically or from a geopolitical perspective. Um, I'm sure there are ways that you can mitigate that. I mean, unless robots have taken over the world, I think you're always going to need to have some sort of human oversight. So maybe you have a, a platoon of tanks that's overseen by uh, a commander, a human commander or a human operator and receives instructions. Like Richard said, you know, the, the cars are very efficient at executing instructions and then executes on those in the best way they know how through you know, neural nets and machine learning and, and so on. They have become very good at recognizing you know, what different things are visually. So I don't think it would be much of an issue for them to say, select the most optimal route through terrain or uh, you know, to account for the pressure at, at the barrel of the main gun or, or things like that. But I think you, you probably will always need that human oversight. And I mean, we, we've seen problems even with the human oversight waging war remotely with the drone programs. Like Richard said, there have been problems there and problems with target selection too. So there are definitely some kinks to, to work out. I'm sure we will see those disasters, but more automation seems inevitable the way I see it. See, now you mentioned the optimized path around a, a terrain feature. And if you know the optimized path, so does the other guy. And that becomes a, a place to put, you know, anti-vehicle mines, et cetera. So I could, yeah, I, I see your point. So we've talked a lot in the sci-fi setting uh, and we've used real world examples. Do you think techs and tanks and mech can exist in a fantasy world? Well, if you just have a giant golem suit of armor and then it boy it, it, it gets a lot easier with a fantasy setting because a wizard just comes along and casts a spell and now your soul is inside this 20 foot tall suit of armor go fight the vampire <laughs> and you know, <laughs> i think that would that would not too bad and then you know if your fantasy is in steam well you can always have steam tanks and uh, warhammer has, has had those before yeah, the, the problem with Warhammer as a comparison, it was designed from its uh, inception to be ludicrous in the extremes. So when you're trying to think practical terms, it's a hard thing to compare anything else against but itself. Uh, what about you, Blaine? Do you, do you see uh, that as a being a feasible thing for a fantasy-type setting? Well, you know, I, I, I've been enjoying Wargate's series on, you know, uh, Forgotten Realm, where you drop a bunch of rangers, you know, in a fantasy setting, and they're blowing up orcs and trolls and stuff. Yeah, I enjoy that. I think a tank in that setting would be very interesting and very entertaining. Um, you know, is it practical? Is it something that the readers are going to want to read? I guarantee you there's an audience out there for something like that. I 100%. Um, it, I, I think it could be very interesting if, it, you know, depending on how you structured the story, I think it would add some intriguing twists and turns. Uh, when I was doing some some preparation for these questions, I found uh, Larry Korea wrote uh, Servants of War, where they essentially did that, Richard, the Gollum idea, uh, powered by the souls of 
whatever. Uh, I think Forgotten Ruins has done some of that, but that was modern equipment that was sort of taken through a temporal time rift sort of thing. What about you, Scott? Do you see a, a um, see this in a fantasy environment? Do you have thoughts on this one? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, the, as long as you can conceive of it and, and make it believable and internally consistent, then generally the reader is along for the ride. You can almost do it in Lord of the Rings, stick a, a palantir on a balrog, put the one ring on it, Sauron is remotely fighting uh, the, the uh, Siege of Gondor. Next week on R Rings of Power. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can't get any worse than what they came up with. So Please I mean, do not know. give them any ideas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Richard is constraining himself on that one because he's had some opinions. Uh, if you want to hear him, him talk about uh, critiques of modern fiction, you should follow him on Facebook. They're hilarious. And the best part of Rings of Power is not watching it. That's my opinion. <laughs> All right. I've, so I've I know really enjoyed that, Richard. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we, one of the things, dear listener, we've talked about behind the scenes is we realized our time was getting sort of out of control in one hour episodes were turning into two. And that's just, you know, nobody got time for that. So we're going to work really hard to uh, to keep us on the sort of hour-ish timeline. I know Richard's going to turn into a pumpkin in like 10 minutes. So before we let you go, uh, we got some two more questions for each of you. Do you have a favorite tank or mech in movies, uh, Scott? I really like the uh, the power loader you brought up earlier from Aliens, and and how their their mech seemed to evolve from that. I, th I thought that was a cool world building detail. Okay, what about you, Blaine? I, I like the one from Avatar. It 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 felt good, and it, it was smaller than the ones I traditionally have been writing about. And I like that feel to it. Okay. Richard, uh, do you have any uh, favorite uh, mech or tanks uh, from the movies? Uh, uh, Veritex, for sure, from Robotech. And I, I just okay. love how it seemed like a, like a nine-year-old came up with that. A nine-year-old's like, I want to be able to walk around as a giant robot and fly. And then the, the, and whoever was like, okay, yeah, we could do that. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I like, like the fly uh, with your arms out. No, I want to get jet. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, we'll do that. Really? <laughs> so now we know what they do. They get their kids hopped up on sugar, and they come up with ideas. All right. <laughs> now that we've established that, uh, I actually liked the. Uh, it was autonomous, but the uh, the robot from Cyberdyne Corporation and RoboCop. The you have three seconds to comply. That was a pretty kind of. Yeah, that was a kind of. Uh, Wow, you out-nerded me today, Richard. You get a cookie. Uh, that was that was pretty awesome. What about your favorite uh, tank or mech in fiction, in the written form? Richard, do you have a favorite? Uh, punt. Come back to me. Let me think. Okay. What about you, Blaine? I would go probably with the Atlas or the Timberwolf from Battletech. Okay. Those are good choices, Richard. You ready yet, or do we move on to Scott? Uh, yeah, you know it. It's like I do enjoy a story with a warlord titan from Warhammer Forty Thousand, because like here comes the building that's also a church with volcano arms, and I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm here. <laughs> kind of hard to top that, but uh, we'll give okay. you a shot, Scott. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think I might have to to punt on that. Uh, I'm thinking of a number of examples, like uh, Isaac Hook's Atlas suits as well, and uh, you know Rick Partlow's Fallen armor in Earth at War. But uh, hard to pick a favorite. 
You like all your children. That's the answer. <laughs> okay. All right. So I know we are tight on time, but uh, before we let everyone go, I'm going to start with you, Blaine. What are you guys uh, working on at the moment? What can the audience expect from you guys or from you in the near future? Uh, the Land and Sea series is going to launch sometime either late this year or early next year. I'm working on book four right now. The first three books are done and, and in the hopper. So that's going to be my focus probably for the bulk of next year is working on the, that series. Okay. What about you, Richard? What are you working on at the moment? What can everyone expect from you? I am working on a Star Wars, not Star Wars space adventure uh, trilogy, which will be published by Bain. And um, that is like, just imagine what if the, the Star Wars sequels were good? So that's, that's what I'm working on right now. So let's uh, hope I'm hope I'm hoping I can deliver on that. So we'll see. Is that uh, something you're writing solo or something you're writing with one of Bane's authors? No, no, I'm writing that solo. When I finish that, I'm, I'm going to be doing the second Ascent Empire book with David Weber. So that's uh, no, finish. That should take me to the end of the year. What about you, Scott? What are you working on at the moment? I just finished the last Spacers book last week. And uh, now I'm about to start cooking up my next project. I'm thinking it's going to be confined to one solar system. And I'm going to try to go pretty hard with the science, but it's going to be about a space marine. So any chance that we can peer pressure you into book two of the mothership? Um, not this year. Ah, all right. Uh, and then last but not least, before we let you go, we have to tell the internet how they can stalk you if they're interested in your book. So Scott, how can they find you online? And as usual, it will be in the show notes, people. Uh, Scottplots.com or just type my name into Amazon. That that second one's probably the best. <laughs> All right. What about you, Blaine? Uh, BlainePardo.com or type my name into Amazon.com or go to Facebook or Twitter. You can get me just about everywhere. Outstanding. And Richard, what about you? How, how can they find you online? Yeah, type in Richard Fox into the Amazon search bar, click the Ember War, and read it for free with Kindle Unlimited. And just about everything I've written is in Kindle Unlimited. So if you've got a month and a free membership, uh, you could get through it all if you read fast enough. So thank you. And uh, if you if you don't want to read with your eyeballs, you want to read with your ears, his narrator is top-notch, one of the best in the industry. So those uh, those audiobooks, uh, I've told Richard this before, but when, uh, when I signed my contract with Podium, they gave me his book, the first one, to show we can work with veterans in MIL-SF. Here, listen to Richard Fox's book. He's a veteran too. And this is before I knew Audible had the subscription. So then I like bought all of the audio from two on. I slept on the couch for a week. He's still not sorry. He's never apologized for, for what he did and to I, me. But And I certainly I spent the money foolishly as well. Uh, see, see, <laughs> this is what he does to you people. All right. You can find us on Twitter at twitter.com uh, backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. Again, blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook where all the shenanigans happen at facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. Again, backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. You can follow us on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters tack and tack blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades where you can support the show for as as 99 cents a month you can help keep the lights on or you can support us more directly at buymeacoffee.com backslash author jr handley again 
buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Be sure to put in the comment section for that it's for the podcast, and I will keep Doc Seska and Nick Garber duly caffeinated. They will drink until their livers explode, um, but it'll be a journey to get there. They'll see, uh, they'll see sound and hear colors. It'll be beautiful. Um, so if you've got other ideas for fireside chats that you'd like to see, be sure to email us. Uh, and I'd like to thank uh, Richard and Blaine and Scott. Thank you guys for coming on the show, man. This was this was fun. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank Thanks you. for having us, Jr. All right. Well, thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am Jr. Hanley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom. <laughs>